Hello again and welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain and ecosystem with a great, great guest, Mr. Tushar Mizra, who is Chief Manufacturing Officer at Masana Therapeutics. Wow, this guy's got a lot of experience and given the nature of the interview today and his insights, we made this into a one-hour special. So for the first 30 minutes or so, uh, my guest gives his background and the various roles that took him to where he is today and some of the roles included you know, you know, being very high up in outsourcing for Takeda Pharmaceuticals and how we went about doing those types of activities. So certainly worth waiting for that section in particular, uh, as well as lots of the other insights that you'll hear today. A bit about my guest today, as I mentioned, he is the Chief Manufacturing Officer at Masana Therapeutics, which is a biopharmaceutical company specializing in the discovery and development uh, pipeline of antibody drug conduits, ADCs, targeting cancers in the areas of un- or high unmet medical needs. He has over 30 years of experience in developing drugs that involve small and large molecules as well as NCs and development and management of worldwide commercial supply chains. Prior to Masana, Tushar was EVP Head of Technical Development and Manufacturing at La Ronde, where he led the process development and manufacturing team for end-to-end manufacturing for RNA products. In addition, as I mentioned, Tushar worked at Takeda Pharmaceuticals in several positions of increasing seniority, most recently as VP and Head of Global Oncology and Biologics Operations. I know some CD this guy's got. So wherever you're listening today, please uh, like the show, please share it, please subscribe. But beyond everything, all of that, just enjoy it. Tushar, welcome to Molecule to Market. Thank you, Raman. I'm happy to be on here and and to speak to whatever questions you have for me. And I have lots, so don't you worry about that, Tushar. Given your experience in the sector, some of the businesses that you've worked for, I'm hoping to get lots of insight from you today to kind of share with our audience. Before we get to that point, let's start with some of your backstory. So talk to us about how you kind of got into the sector and, and then your journey to where you are today. Once upon a time. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> I'm originally from India. I was born in India. I grew up there. left the country when I was 23. I went to a boarding school. Um, perhaps that sort of betrays my a slight British accent because I went to a, a boarding school Um and were taught by missionaries. Uh, and then I went to undergraduate in chemical engineering. I got my bachelor's in chemical engineering in 1981, worked for about one year in, in a company in Bombay or what is now known as Mumbai. Uh, but I'd always wanted to come to the U.S. Um, for higher studies. And so I had a I had a choice to either go to Germany or the U.S., and circumstances were what they were that I came to came to America. I went to the University of Rhode Island in the state of Rhode Island um, here in the U.S., and I got my master's in 1986, and then I stayed on because my professor thought 
I was doing reasonably well, although I never saw myself as someone who would ever get a PhD. But uh, to my surprise, and <laughs> I'm sure to the surprise of many of my friends, I actually got a PhD in 1989, old master's and PhD, both in chemical engineering. And I had met, um, who's my wife now, in, you know, in 1985. She was an undergrad student at University of Rhode Island. I was a grad student. We started dating. We got married in 1988 in India in a Hindu wedding in January of that year. And then in June of that year, we got married in the church. Uh, to for my wife's side of the family. And uh, since then, we've had five children and uh, a, a daughter-in-law and, and a granddaughter who's going to be two years old in, in September. She is uh, sort of the light of our lives, a delightful, smart young lady. And in the interim between 1989, when I started working to now, I have spent a majority of that time, except for three years, in the pharmaceutical industry. I got my start uh, right off, out of graduate school at Exxon, well known, which is now known as Exxon Mobil, but back then it was Exxon, um, in, the, in their research division, uh, really working on sort of reservoir modeling and simulation and doing experiments with uh, rocks and cores. Uh, sort of drilled cores from different oil fields and gas fields. But uh, we lived in Houston. But I, I, I never really, while I really enjoyed working at Exxon and learning a tremendous amount of what, how to apply one, what one has learned in the classroom into really making it being actualizable in, in, in the lab, you know, working with people, working with people who report to me, learning about leadership, learning about how to delegate responsibilities. All of that were very, very helpful, but I really wanted to go to an industry where I could make a difference in people's lives. In the late nine, sort of late early 90s, where I was at Exxon, the gas industry or the oil industry didn't enjoy a great reputation. Not that they do so now, but nevertheless, it was even worse because it was right after the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And so that was a real black mark on the oil industry. You know, all those very stark and awful pictures of birds, um, you know, dying, being draped in sort of nasty looking sort of oil on the pristine shores of Alaska. It just was not a great time. But I honestly wanted to move back into pharmaceuticals because I felt that that's where I could make have an impact on people's lives in a positive way by working on diseases. So I was lucky enough to join a company called American Cyanamid, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a fairly large company in those days. It was a very old, venerated, and uh, respected company. And I joined their veterinary pharmaceuticals division uh, to really start to learn about formulations, about process development, about scale-up, for both uh, working on small molecules and also working on drug delivery, looking at sort of long-term drug delivery, working on implants uh, that could be put into animals and release a drug over 
six months or over a year, just one implant alone. And uh, it was uh, a wonderful three years working there. I couldn't have, looking back on it, I think is one of the happiest times of my lives because we were, as a family, my wife and I, we were young, we had two little children, and we really enjoyed life together. But at work, I really was working with some terrific people who went out of the way to teach me. And, I, and I'm and i a lifelong learner. I've always been that way. I've always loved to learn. So to me, I would just read and read and then practice in the lab, observe people, observe how how they were doing things and learn from them. Never was afraid to ask questions. I was encouraged to do so uh, at the risk of you know sometimes sounding stupid. But I, th I think... That's why it gave me the confidence because I, you know, my boss, who was um, this uh, wonderful woman who encouraged that environment of curiosity about learning, about trying different things, she let us fail. And that is one of the best things a leader can do is stretch their people and, and get them to fail. Because in, in that failure is where there are, lies the seeds of success. So to me, that was those three years were really formative because I really developed a sense of confidence about that I could use my engineering knowledge and the experience that I'd gained and the fact that I could pick up brand new things and, and get pretty good at it and then be able to either you know, learn, keep learning, and also directing people. I had a few scientists working for me and we had a blast uh, doing a lot of work and I imagine I always think back to what could have happened I think if we had not been bought out we were acquired by another much larger company called American Home Products which then owned Wyatt and other you know large sort of pharmaceutical companies I might still stayed on for a long time I don't know it's hard to but, it, but I, it was such a great team. Anyway, once we got acquired by American Home Products, it was very clear for me to see that things weren't quite the same. The bureaucracy had kept in. We were now what are called really the sort of the big pharma, you know, whatever that label is, which didn't, which connotes bureaucracy, con connotes slow speed, uh, risk averse, all of those things. And I just was too young and too ambitious and too impatient to sit around and sort of do nothing, but you know, w w wait for grass to grow. So uh, when an opportunity came up to join a small startup in Northern Virginia, which is near Washington D.C., I jumped at the chance because they were doing some fairly clever things. There were a bunch of engineers and sort of chemists and formulators were trying these fairly new things and um, it just really appealed to me about being on the cutting edge. So moved to Virginia. I stayed in Virginia from 1995 to 2004 and that, that little fledgling company I joined where I was in the, among the first 50 employees I think had grown to a fairly large size, then we were acquired by a Canadian company called Biovel 
1999, I stayed on. We had developed some really interesting products, which were then acquired by GSK, or back then it was, uh, I think it was still, it was by then it was GSK, pretty sure, GlaxoSmithKline. And another product was acquired by J&J. So we'd seen a lot of success. And in 2004, I had sort of risen up to a level of sort of a senior director level. And I was in responsible for development and process development and technology transfer. And we were developing these products in Virginia, then transferring them to manufacturing sites in Canada and also Ireland. But it was more more of the same. You know, looking at that point when I looked into the future, I didn't really see any whether we were going to do anything different. And I was getting impatient again. Um, and so around that time, the gentleman who had founded that fledgling company, which I joined in 1995, a company called Fuse Technologies, and was founded by a man called Dr. Richard Fuse, he called me up and said, hey, I'm starting a, a new company based on thin film delivery, which is essentially it's imagine a tablet, but it's in the shape of a little uh, strip of film that you put on your uh, tongue and it dissolves very quickly. Mm-hmm. Just like sort of the Listerine breath yeah. mints. I don't know if you get them in the UK. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we, it was a, a fairly novel idea for that time to be able to deliver drugs not just by swallowing, but also by using the film as a way to do what is called buckle delivery, which is you the, the film sticks to the side of your uh, cheek or, or your gum, and then the drug is transported across those membranes, on those mucosal membranes, and goes directly into your bloodstream. And it was a very novel idea, and what, my, what Dr. Fuse said is, why don't you come and join us? You can help us develop and scale up and uh, and also build as a facility. And now as an engineer, I'd, I'd been involved in facility design, in a pharmaceutical facility in design. So I joined. It was a bit of a leap. They were in near Chicago, and we were still living in Virginia. And, uh, you know, by then we had four kids, and this is 2004, so my youngest would have been seven. And my... My oldest was 15. So it was essentially a leap of faith. I, I'd respected Dr. Richard Fuse. And I, when I went and joined there, it was obvious that I was going to really enjoy learning about this new modality, this new way of delivering drugs. It was, it was something that I had to learn very from, from scratch, so to speak. For those who are familiar with paper technology or aluminium rolling technology, they would understand this, but it's really around, you know, stretching something and then, you know, putting it through different rollers and winding it up. And that's how you sort of form these rolls. For us, it was about casting a film and getting it to dry and then moving it and cutting it. So it was a whole new, an area of, of mechanics of, you know, different, sort of challenge different parts of my brain. And learning to understand how films can remain continuous, how they can break, how can you need to maintain tension throughout the entire line so that the the film lays out uniformly and dries uniformly, all of that. So anyway, we spent two years doing that. 
and because my two older children, 15 and 13, were about were in high school or about to enter high school, it was a rather crucial period in their lives where I didn't want to pull them out of high school and move them to a completely different setting. Sort of a, this teenage years are rather, you know, fraught with so many other changes. They're going through their own physical changes, but also they have friends, lifelong friends. So we decided, we meaning my wife and I, and the children together decided that my wife and children would remain in Virginia and I would commute between Virginia and Chicago every week. So Monday through Friday, I would be living in Indiana, well, south of Chicago, and then fly back for the weekends. I did that for two years. And then the company was heading in a direction, this film company, that I wasn't completely aligned with. And the travel was also getting to be quite onerous, quite burdensome. Imagine, especially with a young family, yeah. With a young family. And all kudos to my wife for being willing to take that on. And right around the time, I happened to get a call from her headhunter, you know, outplacement sort of firm that said they were looking for position for a company in near Boston. And that was perfect because after being many years away from New England area, we really wanted to go back to New England because that's where my wife is originally from. She was born just in a town called Norwood, south of Boston. And her parents were still there. Her entire family, extended family, were still there and are still here. And so it made sense. And I don't know if this will become obvious, but in my career, I have... This may sound strange, but I've never really planned for things in the sense that it's not like I had a plan saying in five years, I'll do this. In 10 years, I'll do that. I envy people who can do that. That's amazing. For me, I've always been more opportunistic in the sense that something comes my way and the opportunity knocks and you answer. You know, I've always loved this saying from John Lennon, which it says, uh, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And so to me, I've always loved that because that's how I've led my life. A bit of risk-taking, a bit of uh, a caution to the winds, and seeing how things work out. So anyway, this headhunter call comes. I take it. It turns out to be a, a company called Sepracor. I was the vice president of uh, what are called CPS, Chemistry and Farm Science. So I was handling the entire value chain from taking a molecule from sort of a handover from discovery and taking it all the way to scale up and then handing it off to the manufacturing group. So I was doing sort of that. The only difference this time was that I was actually also involved in basic research and process chemistry and working on new molecular entities. Because before, before this, from 95 to 2004, I was really working on delivery technologies with existing molecular entities that the world had already been improved. My first three years at American Cynamid, I worked on also new molecular entities. So there was a gap where I had worked on, on really understanding process chemistry for enemies, especially also proteins, working on recombinant DNA uh, and reco- uh, using E. coli therapies to express proteins. Then I went to sort of drug delivery. And then in 
2006, when I joined Cepracor, I was back to working on small molecule, new molecular entity research, process chemistry, process development, and then also oral solid dose, as well as working on inhalation therapies. So working with 3M on developing metered dose inhalers or working with other programs to uh, do what is called nebulization dosage forms. So it was a really all-encompassing sort of job that handled uh, different kinds of molecular entities working with, you know, working on psychiatry indications, so central nervous system indications, and also working on respiratory therapies as well. So it was a, a sort of a very broad-based job and really terrific experience. I had a great team. It was fun to work with that team. It was, I was roughly about, I think, 60 or 70 people under me, and it was from 2006 to 2012 was uh, one of the highlights of my career, um, working there, learning a lot. I had a great boss who really, again, sort of allowed me to fail, allowed me to stretch, and, and allowed me to learn, and placed a great deal of faith and trust in me. And in many ways, I have taken those elements of leadership and adopted them for my own. That's how I run my groups. And that's how I see myself as a leader, as a leader who can be hands-on, who, who at least, you know, maybe five, ten years ago, I was still leading by example, doing things in the lab or actually, but over the years, as I've gotten deeper and deeper into executive management, that opportunity doesn't arise anymore where I'm more directive in pure delegation. But I will talk about it perhaps a little bit later on in the program about that I did have a brief tenure in which I was able to go back to the lab. Anyway, so in 2012, I am at Sepracor. We got acquired by Sumitomo, the Dynapon Sumitomo Pharmaceuticals. And in 2009, the end of 2009, so 2010 and 11, I stayed on, did many trips to Japan, learned about Japanese culture and how to work with the Japanese and got to know this amazing country. And the, the, what an amazing culture. It's similar to, reminded me of India. It's a very ancient culture, very ancient traditions, respect for family and hierarchy and respect for seniority. And I really enjoyed that. But in 2012, another opportunity came up where I could jump the divide. So far, I had been on the other side of the divide, which is from research all the way through to sort of phase three, where you, you've, you've made a rare asset that is already developed. You know, you've filed the NDA or the BLA, and now you're handing it off to commercial, off to the manufacturing side. But in an opportunity came up where I could join the manufacturing side. This way, I would be in the receiving end rather than, you know, the sending end. And that, to me, that was a way for me to get involved in the entire value chain now. Because I had done everything else before that, from early phase to all the way to phase three, and now it was my opportunity to join where I could be beyond phase three, phase four and beyond into manufacturing, commercial supply chain, managing large inventories, getting the a commercial product with the first approval and then branching it out 
into the rest of the world. So when I joined, I joined the Takeda company. Takeda Pharmaceuticals, a venerable Japanese company over 240 years old. And to me, again, because I'd worked for a Japanese company prior to that, I was able to jump into that culture rather quickly and was able to assimilate myself rather quickly and continued traveling to Japan. So anyway, I'd picked up a bit of Japanese. It was a funny anecdote. But my final interview was with my boss who was in Japan. So this is 2012. I go to, and because Japan was 14 hours ahead of the US, I actually went to the site at 8, eight o'clock at night, 8 p.m. Uh, and the then the HR business partner who was this wonderful woman, she received me at the door. She said, everything is ready. It was a video conference. She said, you will go in. There'll be two gentlemen. One is, you know, one will be your boss and there'll be an interpreter. So feel free to you know, speak and they'll, they'll be, you know, and the interpreter will, will you know, fast, fast out with English and, and Japanese. So it's not a problem. So anyway, I went into the room. She let me in. You know, I bowed traditional Japanese way. And then I introduced myself and said the first few lines, which really said, you know, my name is so-and-so and I'm happy to be here. And, you know, I really look forward to talking to you. All that in Japanese. Oh, wow. Good to you. <laughs> uh, because I, you know, I'd picked up uh, over the previous three, four years, I'd picked up a fair amount of Japanese having just traveled there. And I have a, I have a pretty good facility with languages. And so I was able to do that. But I would say that's all that was I said. And so then Mora, the, our HR, my HR business partner, she left the room. And then the rest of the interview continued in English, obviously, and back and forth. Uh, and as it ends up, I got the job and I started working. But a few weeks later, I happened to meet somebody on the um, in another department, in a research department, and he introduced himself and he said, hey, I have something to ask you. He goes, we heard that you interviewed with, uh, with Inoue-san. And Inoue-san was the, my boss, who I'd interviewed over the, over the video conference with. I said, yes, it was. And I said, yeah, Mora told us that you, the entire interview was done in Japanese. <laughs> Because <laughs> Mora had only heard me she left the, the room, room now, and she had left the room. <laughs> so I love that the room, the room email that this yeah. guy yeah, yeah, was yeah, fluent yeah. in Japanese. I love yeah. it. Yeah, and so anyway, um, that's that's I always love that story. Yeah, that's uh, great. Um, yeah. So anyway, I stayed at Takeda, and my remit grew bigger and bigger. We were when I joined, we had one major product called Velcade. It was for multiple myeloma. And this was my first exposure to working on cancer products or, or, or oncology products, anti-cancer products. And I immediately I realized the connection between the company and the patients. It's not that I hadn't been aware of that connection in my previous roles, but this was such an immediate connection and a very close connection because at Takeda, we would have patient visits almost every month where they would come in an auditorium, meet the entire company and thank thank the company saying, thank you because of what you're doing. I was able to, you know, reach major milestone. For example, see a grandson being born or a grandchild being born or or uh, see a 
you know, a child being married or some other major life event, which wouldn't have been possible for them had they not been on our drug. And that was so fulfilling to me. In many ways, when I hearken back to why I switched to the pharma world, was finally getting realized, I said, that's what I'm here for. What little I'm doing, not that I'm doing anything amazing, because to make oncology drug is not just about making the product, it's about the clinical trials, it's about really picking the target, really understanding the target, all the basic research that goes into it, about biomarker understandings, all of that. But I had a small role to play in that fact that I made this product or was making this product which was then making it to a patient and helping them prolong their lives. That was the first realization that this is where I really belonged. This is where I really wanted to be. And then our portfolio grew. Takeda acquired a few more, in licensed a few more products. There was a, we in licensed this antibody drug conjugate called Etcetris, which was, um, was, was one of the first of its kind. In fact, it may be in the very first antibody drug conjugate approved. It was developed by a company called Seattle Genetics. And we licensed it at Takeda for everything outside of the US and Canada. We were, you know, for about roughly 75 to 80 countries, Takeda had the license. So I had the opportunity to take that product, you know, essentially scale it up, manufacture it, and get it approved on in all these countries. And so I got a chance to travel to China and to Brazil and Turkey and um, wow, many of course the EMA and in Brussels and and everything else to to talk to because this was such cutting edge technology. There were a lot of uh, regulatory agencies who weren't familiar with what an antibody drug conjugate is. So we spent a great deal of time traveling and almost educating uh, key opinion leaders, physicians, uh, regula- regulatory agencies, regulators about how this is. This was really life-changing. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. If I can just ask at that point as well, with your, when you, you've commercialized and scaling, taking these products globally, was, was the manufacturing all being done in-house or was this, were you responsible for the third-party supply through CDMOs as well? It was completely third-party. Interesting. Um, and how was, how was that experience then of, because presumably you had manufacturing partners all over the world and oh, we did. having to manage, we did. manage all these. <laughs> I appreciate you had a team, but you were probably responsible for ensuring that you're selecting, identifying, selecting, and ultimately partnering with the right ones. That's a very good question. Because from my start in 1992 till till 2006, when I switched to a company called Sepracor, my experience had been wholly working on in in facilities that were wholly owned by the company that I worked for. They were all in-house manufacturing, in-house pilot plants, in-house development labs, in-house analytical labs. In Sepracor was the first time where I where I came across a wholly outsourced supply chain, starting from API, from active pharmaceutical ingredient, all the way through to packaging and, and distribution, and the analytics, the, the, the quality control, all of that was outsourced. I mean, obviously, the teams that managed those were in, in-house, 
But again, it was a virtual supply chain. How did you find that kind of reliance on other parties? I found it to be, in the end, a brilliant solution. Because I realized that there are many times when a company, when they have their in-house facilities, there is a pressure to keep it filled with that same product. And if the product fluctuates in sales or volume demand or forecast, it can really have an, an impact on, on, on the, the facilities that a company owns. Whereas if you are, if you've not invested, the company's not invested in, in brick and mortar, you can now use that capital to be able to distribute your the manufacturing of your product over several CMOs and that way be able to sort of defray the risk, diversify your supply chain, allow, allow each of these CMOs to almost compete against each other for volume, for price, price discounts, and be managing that now, I may make it sound rather easy, but it's it's not that easy because I think in the end, what I've realized is you're not working with a company, you're working with people on the other side. And it became very clear, and the, the FDA were also, and other regulatory agencies also made it sure, is we didn't have that throw-it-over-the-wall mentality. What I mean by that is, hey, all right, hey, CMO, which is, contract manufacturing organization. Uh, here's a product. Here, take it, scale it up, make it, and let us know when you're done. You very transactional. Very transactional. Approach, yeah, yeah. And that never worked. Well, I was going to say, I'm sure, based on your experience as well, that, that was, and all the style of the way you... All the style, yes. So if you reflect now on you know, those relationships, what were the good and bad relationships? Like what what was the commonality between the relationships that worked really, really well? It was establishing trust first, really establishing trust with the people on the other side, really understanding what their capabilities were, making sure that we were essentially aligned with a company that had the expertise, had the true expertise in that particular field. So if we were going after, say, a small molecule that we were making, but it was high potency, you know, very highly potent cytotoxic. We needed to make sure that company didn't just have it on their marquee, oh, we are experts on making high potent products. Because it wasn't just a number of, we needed to go there, do an audit, sit down with the people, look at their facilities, really understand, talk to their operators, talk to their engineers, re get an idea of their experience base, talk to them about failures, what what products had they failed on? Why did they fail? And what were their successes? And look at that before we decided, okay, this was the right company. So in order to find the right company, we would look at 10. Wow. And out of 10, we would pick one because we knew that this was going to be a long-term relationship. And the last thing you want to do is a disruption in supply chain for such a critical product as, say, an oncology product. And is that ratio, sorry to interrupt, Tisha, is that ratio where you look you look at 10 CDMO partners and choose one, you know, the, in the roles since that where you've worked at a few other, you know, firms up to where you are, obviously today as Chief Manufacturing Officer at Masana Therapeutics, is that kind of, 
is that ethos that you described there where you will really do your diligence on you know, say a pool of 10 and then ultimately do that diligence to the point where you're confident in that one partner that you're going to go with? Well, so no, I don't think the 10 to 1 ratio always applies. I think it depends on the industry you're in. We, where we are in, in the industry that Mersana is, or even Takeda was, when you are working on high-potency cytotoxic molecules, there are few and far in between of these types of companies that can, that handle, can, handle, that can handle these yeah, compounds. Absolutely. These compounds. Yeah. So we had, over the years, working not only just in Takeda, but even before that, from 2006, you start to build a catalog of companies that you always go back to because you've already established relationships and you've already established trust. And as long as the management has re remained fairly constant in those CMOs, so you have those direct points of contact, you go back to that company because you can fall back on history of, of success, you can fall back on the history of successes and failures, uh, lessons learned, and be able to connect very quickly because it's looking across the table, literally or figuratively, and, and basically say, hey, remember project X, Y, and Z, right? We did that, and we, we, this is along the similar lines because what you're trying to do is, like I've always said, it, working with CMOs beyond the standard sort of terminology of checking boxes of and looking at all of the capabilities and the equipment and uh, the regu their regulatory history, which is very important, that they have passed regulatory inspection from the FDA, from the EMEA, from the PMDA, and Visa, all of the major regulatory agencies around the world, uh, which is then an imprimatur of excellence. Um, it's that it's the really the trust you've built because. When you have that trust, when you have an understanding, you can go to them with a new product and they'll say, we can do this. because, And you know they can do it because they've already done it for you in the past. So the 10 to 1 ratio has now gone away. I think we look at perhaps maybe on the, on the MAB side, on the monoclonal antibody side, we perhaps look at, still look at 3 to 4 and, and go back to the true tried and true one or two people. Uh, companies. So on the small molecule side, we'll look at perhaps a little more because there are more, many more companies. There's more suppliers. There's more suppliers, vendors in the yeah. market. Yeah. Yeah. In China and India and, and Europe and the US. Uh, and perhaps that ratio is maybe five to one or six to one. And then you, when you come down to drug product, anyone would think that there's plenty of drug product suppliers. But when you're working on the kind of drug product that we use, which is really in a vial, because we work on injectables, sterile injectables, it the the choices become fewer again. So now you're down to really some three or four really top of the line suppliers in the market who have sort of who've really specialized in making being able to handle these very potent cytotoxic compounds and be able to supply in either small volume or large volume. And that's important. Their capacity is very important. And they can flex because they have different size lines, filling lines, fin lines. They also need to have either capability to make a liquid product or a frozen product or a lyophilized product. So they need to have the that flexibility in, in providing you those different services. Um, 
And so, and then beyond that, beyond the fill finish, when you have your product in a vial, now you're talking about uh, a company that can do the secondary packaging, putting it into cartons, putting it into boxes. And even there, you have to make sure that they have the capability to be able to handle the cytotoxic product, only because not that they are exposed to the product, but they are exposed to the potential of a vial dropping on the floor, breaking, and the product being released into the air, and now how do you do the cleanup? And so they need to have, be able to hand, have the handling technologies to be able to sort of manage those off the sort of uh, you know unplanned incidents or accidents. So that's that value chain. As you reflect back on, say, I'm going to say the last ten years from when you first kind of joined to cater and obviously got more involved in the external manufacturing and, and using third parties to, you know, that's been a, a huge chunk of your role since then up to where you are today at Masana. How, in that time period, so that 10-year time period, I suppose, how has your experience evolved in terms of using uh, kind of CMOs and third-party vendors? Have you seen a change in the manner in which some of them operate. I'm, you know, obviously, some of them have got huge and you know, very global businesses now. And um, you know, is it is it very different now than it was, say, ten years ago? It is. It was, I think, uh, a more distributed. I'd say, ten, even ten years ago, there's been a lot more consolidation in the industry, and there's also been some changes where there were some well-known players who've decided to come out of the contract manufacturing game and decided that they would make generics on sort of, you know, either generic sort of biogenerics or generic sort of APIs on their own for their own purposes. So they've come out of that, the CMO game. Um, and I think what the companies, the CMOs have gotten better at is really engaging with the innovative innovator companies and offering a more complete package about, Really understanding the need of the of the innovator company and putting together a face that provides the innovator company with the assurance that these that these CMOs know what they're doing. You know whether it's really tech transfer, whether it's scale up, whether it's characterization, whether it's uh, you know identification of important critical process parameters. Because it's to me it's the success of that relationship has been always two ways. For us, I've always seen these relationships as partnerships. Mm -hmm. It's less about client and vendor. Because the moment you treat your CMO like a, a normal sort of vendor going and, and, and expecting them to do your bidding without questions asked, you've already failed. The success lies in the back and forth. Is as they, there's nobody who understands your product better than you do. So it's incumbent upon you to make the receiving party, which is the CMO, understand as much as they can because then you're in a partnership. You are actually the best you can to develop because these are very complex processes, complex products. So, and, and any regulatory agency will make sure you've done all of the suitable studies to characterize your process thoroughly 
Because in the end, what they want to be assured is that that vial that comes off at the very beginning of, say, a, a production run, that first vial is the same as the last one. And there may be, in that batch, there may be 50,000 vials, there may be 100,000 vials, there may be 5,000 vials. Irrespective of the size of the batch, each vial should be the same as the other vial. Right? Now, here is the important thing, is that what is also important is, is working with my marketing and our uh, marketing colleagues and sales colleagues to have an accurate forecast. And that is easier said than done because you one may have all the models about how this drug may sell or not sell. So you are always fighting that, oh, I did not make enough or I made too much. And if I've made too much, well, that's all that money that is sitting as working capital really impacting your bottom line. And if I didn't make enough, oh my God, I'm going to run out. And there is one of, one of the greatest sins you can have is running out for a product that is life-saving. Because I've always given this example to my group and I, where I talk, I said, when patient X shows up at a clinic, you know, for their, say, weekly dosing or a monthly dosing, because they know that this is what keeps them alive, they don't really care what kind of day Tushar Mishra had or so-and-so had in, in making that product. They, and they shouldn't. They only need to be assured that when they show up at the clinic, there's a vial waiting for them and they are ready to be infused. Mm. Absolutely. And in, for me to break that contract is unconscionable. And so to me, I have, that's what I really learned is about this nexus between marketing and, and, and forecasting and inventory management and distribution and, and regulatory approval. Because the other thing that we learned the hard way was that if I make a slight change in my process, I have to make sure that that slight change is communicated to the regulatory agencies in that country. And they have approved that change. Because only then can I, and I and I and I'm skimming over this because, but this is really important: is that everything is connected. That's what I'm saying: is you know everything is connected, and so in, in that sense, that's what I really learned at Takeda is it's it's this nexus, this delicate balance between making a good product, making sure it's supplied, making sure the CMOs have a good regulatory history and are uh, and and can pass all of the regulatory agencies, making sure that we have products out on the market that have good stability, that their regulatory history is nice and clean. Lots of moving pieces. Lots of moving pieces. I think it's a, it's a great point. And I wanted to underline, I suppose, one of the things you talked about earlier around the importance of flexibility amongst the partners, because in that example where you described the patient or the potential for running out of product. It just it shows where having a flexible partner that can assist with getting more product quickly is absolutely essential, not just for you guys and your business and the revenue commercial side of things, but as you said, absolutely the the patient as well. So thanks. I think, you know, for many of our, many of our listeners are in the CMO, CDMO space. And so 
when it, when you were talking about looking at partners like to partner in, in the importance of partnership i mean i'm sure a lot of them are thinking wow this guy sounds like a dream client because you know we do often hear as well the flip side which is sometimes you know buyers like yourself will look and partners as vendors as suppliers as opposed to the, uh, the the approach that you take so i really appreciate you kind of sharing that insight and we've got about a few minutes left and i kind of i've really enjoyed today because i've allowed you to given you the air so to speak to Shah, because you've got so so much experience in this space and i think i, I was just soaking for our listener just to hear your experience and actually talk about how you've dealt with uh, the roles that you've dealt with over the years and the things that you've learned. So let's let's just change gears for the last five minutes and, and talk about the future and, and where where the market is going. You know, firstly, it'd be great to hear a little bit about Masana Therapeutics and what you guys do in, in your focus areas. But I suppose secondary to that, as a as a biopharma company, you know, in in the space, you know, fighting against you know helping patients with cancer. How does the future look for businesses like yours that? at a time where the biotech market and capital raising is is more challenging than it was a few years ago and in you know for you post covid as well the supply chain i suspect has got a bit more complicated so sure. in, in my observation for you is in the role you're dealing with so many different it's like a perfect storm of you know difficult capital markets supply chain issues and you want to get a drug to market so yeah any thoughts on i suppose the in the business and where you guys you know, move, how you guys move going forward and anything you can share on trends that you expect to see. Sure. Um, five well, questions rather, in one, Tishar. Five questions right, in right, one. Right. That was right. it. <laughs> rather timely and poignant question, only because only last week we announced a, a rather significant reduction in force, only because our lead molecule for platinum-resistant ovarian cancer failed its primary endpoint in the clinic. And this is what I mean. There are, there are no surefire things in, in pharma. Uh, biotech world is fraught with you know, a fairly large attrition rate of, mo- of molecules and even a late phase asset like what we had uh, in, ultimately failed in the clinic even though the preliminary sort of trials showed uh, the potential for a really good success. And while I feel really bad for the employees who were impacted, uh, I feel worse for the patients because we were really looking to give hope to patients. But we're not giving up. Mersana is exclusively in the space of developing antibody drug conjugates where you do, you know, it's really a targeted chemotherapy idea. You deliver a very cytotoxic payload only to the tumor cells without, so you're impacting in many ways only the tumor cells and sparing the healthy tissue. So we have other products that are in development and we hope to bring them to patients. So we are marching ahead. Um, yes, about 50% you know, leaner, but nevertheless still uh, focused and, and, and resolute in our determination to bring therapies to patients. What's happening within the industry is I think the CMO industry has actually gotten bigger because what has happened in the intervening 10 years is new modalities have come into play. We had the immunotherapy revolution in, you know, in the mid sort of part of the last decade. And then right around before uh, the pandemic broke, we had the RNA revolution uh, with 
you know, with with Moderna and Pfizer and and um, you know the uh, what is the German company that made the vaccine? BioNTech. BioNTech, because here everybody says Pfizer, but really Pfizer sort of licensed that. It was really BioNTech that did the d- development of that vaccine. Pfizer helped with a lot of the other things um, uh, in in com- helping commercialize it and. and the RNA revolution has now gone beyond vaccines to now looking at uh, attacking cancer and other things, which is amazing. And that has spawned a lot of CMOs that are now focused on making RNA and not just RNA, but plasmids and uh, DNA and all of that other things that the attended sort of, and that has also spawned a lot of analytical departments or analytical labs that deal with uh, analyzing and and characterizing these products, what then that was followed very quickly by CRISPR, and so now gene therapy and and cell therapy. So there's been an explosion of those kinds of um, organizations that offer either direct sort of manufacturing capability or even product manufacturing or, or being able to make API. So it, this is, and I think that's where the new uh, area of growth will be is really around gene therapy, cell therapy, and 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 RNA therapy. But that doesn't mean biologics uh, goes away. Biologics, the antibody uh, uh, industry or the antibody sort of modality will always remain strong because over the last thirty years we've perfected the way to make antibodies fairly quick, fairly easily. What you've seen is really something that would have cost. I know ten thousand dollars a gram of antibody in thirty years ago. Now you can make it under hundred dollars a gram. That is really the sort of the 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 cost evolution that has happened. Whereas we've gotten better at uh, cell line designs and and looking at cell you know output and and uh, characterizing you know oh, there's Cho cell technology, other technologies, and downstream purification. We've gotten better at all of those, and I think we'll see the same evolution where costs will come down for RNA or other things um, and 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 be able to do that. The other industry that I forgot to really mention, they're in the nucleic acid sort of field, but they're specifically around treating rare diseases called oligonucleotides, where you're really looking at not attacking DNA, not sort of changing DNA like the way say, CRISPR does, but really w- working on R- uh, the uh, RNA, the the messenger RNA part of of correcting uh, the the wrong messenger RNA to make to to change it in a certain way that it produces the right protein. So these are all, and there are a lot of success stories for the oligonucleotide in, industry. There's a great one um, for for basically Spinraza, which uh, is used for making uh, treating spinal. Uh, uh, Atrophy, um, SMA, spinal muscular atrophy, um, you know, made by uh, uh, I think Biogen and and uh, and uh, I can't remember the the innovator company. Uh, it used to be called Isis, but now they're called something else. Um, understandably so. And, and, uh, um, and so uh, anyway, these are this is it's an evolution industry, and I love being part of it because you can't stand still. My only Concern is that the technology seems to be running way ahead of regulatory. So the regulatory agencies are racing to catch up 
to put in guidances around these brand new products. And so there's a there is that that tussle and pull and push and pull for technology because regulatory agencies can sometimes act as a break, you know, because you're trying to put in quality and there is a the tendency to say, I want to push ahead, I want to rush ahead. But this tension is unnecessary because you we do need to regulate the industry um, to make sure that in the end, safety, patient safety has to be the primary concern. And the only way you ensure safety is while most companies are ethical and, and really want to do the right thing by patients, you still need the guardrails of what the agent regulatory agencies provide. Yeah, I agree. Between which you need to make. Tishar, this has been a really tremendous conversation. I'm so pleased that we were able to bring your story and insights and expertise to the podcast. So thank you so much for being a guest on Molecule to Market. Robin, thank you for um, reaching out and listen, willing to listen to my story. I don't think my story is anything remarkable. I think there are hundreds and thousands of people who would probably you know, tell you the same story, but I'm happy to be for here sure. and, and give you... I respectfully disagree. <laughs> <laughs> One final question. Um, just because you said at the start, and I wrote it down, obviously you have uh, five kids and a granddaughter. So congratulations on, on the, you. your you know, absolutely hilarious sounding two-year-old, which I suspect she bosses that entire family now. As, absolutely. As totally. So how have you, you know, you've built a, an incredible career and it sounds like you've had a very supportive wife, and, and, but I can hear familiarities in your story than in my own in terms of traveling the world and moving around with the kids and actually having that support there. So how have you, I suppose, any any tips on retaining balance in life? Because I think you've obviously had a very successful career, but it sounds like you have a very wholesome, healthy family life as well. So any any tips you've got for our younger listeners on how to navigate that as they, as they do that themselves in the next few years? You just got to love them, love your family. It's really about love. And, and the willingness to listen, that willingness to forgive, and asking for forgiveness. Basically, what I've learned is you need to check your ego at the door. You may be the vice president, you may be this, that in the workplace, but when you come in here, you're dad, you're a husband, you're <laughs> this, you're, you're, you're the, uh, especially here in the US, I am the gardener, I am <laughs> the, the cleaner, I clean the pool, I... Not that I mow the lawn, but I work on my own vegetable garden. I do carpentry. I do this. I I do plumbing. I whatever is necessary. And and so, handyman. Yeah, I'm a handyman. She shed that ego and just be with the kids and really listen to them. Yeah, that's great advice. And thanks again to Shah. Thank you, Raman. So there you have it. That was Mister Tushar Misra, who is the chief. Manufacturing Officer at Messina Therapeutics. Uh, what a great guest. Uh, lots of great anecdotes and stories and uh, what, a back, what a backstory as well. I mean, as I reflect on the conversation today, you can't but love his kind of opportunistic and energetic nature from obviously coming to the US when he was young, the way he talks about his family and then just you know, moving his way through the career without uh, without a plan, as he said, which I thought was very courageous of him, but it certainly worked very well for him in, in his career growth that he's had. Um, you know, as he as he kind of moved through his career early on and, and ended up 
in the roles later on in his career at Takeda, I particularly liked how he opened up about how challenging it was to build that kind of worldwide manufacturing supply chain for Takeda to help launch a product, but also how his kind of shift during that period went from internal to external manufacturing and the experience he's had of actually using CMO partners and his reliance on those partners. So many insights on you know the way that she thinks about partnerships and flexibility and living across the table and trust and these are things well beyond what he says were you know just checking the boxes and the rational decisions uh, these buyers go through with selecting uh, you know, contract services partners like many of you are in today. He clearly has um, you know and later on in his career has built a, a greater affiliation to you know patients and that came across loud and clear in the way that he talks about uh, you know, working for Takeda on cancer products and, and the impact that had on patients, which has obviously evolved as his career has gone on. I thought it was quite um, quite insightful to hear how Tishar talked about the challenge often of how to outsource depending on the nature of the product. So he said that you know, when you're dealing with, say, a high-potency product, like you need to fill in vials and say the volumes aren't very big that limits choice for what's out there in the market. And I got the impression that that's been made even more difficult as the consolidation has continued uh, in in the sector. And, and, you know, ultimately that makes it harder for people like him to do his job. Towards the back end of the interview, you can't help but have felt for, you know, the, the reality of failure in a clinical stage biopharma company, uh, you know, that Nissan has had recently and one of one of its products has not quite met the mark in clinical trials and the impact that has had on employees and patients within that organization and just brings, to, you know, the reality of what we do and the, the chance of failure to the fore, which is, which is kind of good reminder for us own, for us all. And finally, you know, I think it is interesting given his perspective on the buy side, see how he's seen the explosion in modalities in the sector and how he sees that driving the outsourcing space across uh, the board. And I really thought his thoughts on um, how the technology is outpacing the regulatory bodies uh, is an interesting one because that has come up again and again and something the regulatory bodies are going to have to grapple with and get a handle on but yeah what what a great guest and what a great guy and i was so glad that we're able to uh, bring his interview to your ears today thanks always for listening thanks to my team for putting today's uh, podcast together wherever you're listening to today's show please give us a, a nice rating or like or share with holly and i'll see you again very soon hi again Thanks for tuning in to today's show. Really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website, uh, Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecules Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. 
the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.